0: hello and welcome to the emergency medicine journal podcast for august 2023 i'm rick Boddy.
1: and i'm sarah edwards
0: and as usual we've got a really nice collection of six papers to take you through this month covering a wide range of topics and sarah we're going to start with scaphoid fractures
1: yeah, so I've picked this paper by the lead author Laura Coventry et al and it's looking at the clinical features that best predict the occult scaphoid fractures, a systematic review of diagnostic test accuracy studies. We've covered a lot of systematic reviews and, you know, as expected, this systematic review takes you through the standard methodology that you would expect using the PRISMA guidance etc. Essentially, they were trying to determine two things, the prevalence of scaphoid fractures amongst patients with clinical suspicion of scaphoid injury and normal radiographs, and two, whether clinical features can identify patients that do not require immobilization and further imaging. And I think the paper goes on to talk about a little bit about why they did this is One of the issues is we see a lot of query scaphoids. People get immobilized for up to a week or two. And actually, scaphoid injuries are not as common as the soreness that perhaps we see. So they wanted to obviously understand that and try and and work out the benefit of these things. So after doing their literature search, they were left with eight studies that reported data on 1,685 wrist injuries. Just to within that body of wrist injuries, there was 9% of scaphoid fractures despite normal radiographs. So that's important to bear in mind when we're talking about it. And they unpicked the... The prevalence, and then the next thing they looked at is the sort of clinical features that re- were reported by these studies, and they d- went on to describe all of them. The most common tests were the scaphoid, uh, were the scaphoid compression test, in which pain occurs at the anatomical snuffbox, and the longitudinal compression of the thumb, and also the scaphoid tubercle tenderness. Those were the three most common tests that people did across most of those studies. What they went to do then, they looked at the predictive characteristics of these index tests, so everything from your scaphoid compression test to your anatomical snuffbox tenderness, all the way through to tests that I wasn't quite familiar with, such as the pinch test, ulnar deviation, grip strength, supination strength, for example. There's a list, uh, and it's in Table 4, that go through all of them. So they found the most sensitive test or predictive of characteristic index test was pain on supination against resistance, which had a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 97.8%. Next, they discovered that grip strength being less than 25% of the contralateral side was 92.3%, with a specificity of 33.8%. Of note, um, the pain on supination against resistance, which is the test I mentioned first, only 53 participants had that uh, um, with their fracture, and only 53 people tested that were tested with that and the grip strength had 78 participants had that particular test with that characteristic for comparison so the anatomical snuffbox test had a sensitivity of 92.1 percent and a specificity of 48.4 percent I think it's really important as I've said there are potentially a lot of index tests that this paper looked at and found with all these. And whilst the pain on supination and grip strength of less than 25% on the contralateral side were relatively sensitive, their specificity was good in some respects, but actually this pool of patients that had those tests was very, very small. And also, they found that the anatomical snuffbox test, um, which is beloved by lots of emergency medicine physicians, um, whilst it's sensitive, its specificity isn't as reliable as we would ideally like. What they tried to do as well, they tried to see if they could pool this, but it it was challenging with with the data they had, i.e. pooling multiple tests together, but they weren't able to do this. I think... What is clear from this systematic review is some of the tests that we do regularly clinically are perhaps not as reliable as we we think. There may be additional tests that we might want to consider. And I don't think at this moment there is a test that we can do to stop people being immobilised until they're seen.
0: I think this is a very important question to ask because we rely on clinical findings to detect those occult scaphoid fractures with a normal x-ray it's the only way of detecting them because we can't mr scan everybody so suspicion is really important the anatomical snuffbox tenderness is the mainstay of what we do isn't it if you're not tender there people often say oh, it's not scaphoid fracture but you said that you said it's only 92.3 percent sensitive so you still need to be a little careful in those patients it's not ruling out everybody is it uh, it was very interesting to see the pain on supination against resistance was 100% sensitive. The confidence intervals are really wide. So I'll still have a little bit of caution before deciding that just because you pass that test, you know, you, you haven't got a scapegoid fracture. It doesn't necessarily mean that because the sample is small, but actually I think that's very helpful to inform our practice. Uh, I'm Quite surprised that sensitivity was so high, to be honest. The probability of an occult scaphoid fracture in the absence of all of those is likely to be pretty low.
1: Yeah. And it's not a test I'm hugely familiar with, the pain on supination. I've had to go away and use um, a very popular search engine uh, to try and really understand how that test is done. And I'm still not quite clear with it in my mind. So I think there are clearly other tests that probably need a little bit more looking at to see their sensitivity and specificity. Because as you said, this supination test, for example, and a couple of the other tests like the grip strength test was only done in a very small number of the participants. So I think it's watched this space. I think there's still more work to be done on our beloved scaphoid injury.
0: Absolutely. Someone's got to a great project to do to look at a clinical decision rule there, I'm sure. The next paper that we looked at was also a systematic review. And this time we looked at pain management. So this is a paper from Fiona Sampson and Maxine Johnson, who are based in Sheffield. And they asked, why is pain management so difficult in the emergency department? Uh, It's a very important and clinically relevant question. We know that we're not that great at it, particularly with all the pressures in the emergency department. So in this systematic review, the two authors have searched databases for studies that have looked either using qualitative or quantitative methods or a mixture at the barriers and enablers to providing adequate pain management in the emergency department. So they found 24 studies in total, 12 of which were quantitative. They were mainly surveys and 12 qualitative studies. And I found this interesting based on the methodology, actually. We often see systematic reviews of quantitative studies. Here we've got a systematic review of qualitative research. So it's very interesting to see that approach where they've essentially done a uh, identified the themes in the qualitative studies between them and presented the themes sort of as a whole from all of those studies a very interesting method they found some really interesting things so there were five themes that emerged and I'll just take you through those themes the first is that pain management is seen as important by the staff but not a clinical priority so the staff generally said that they have to prioritize things that kill patients first above the things that you know are just I guess to make people feel better and there was a quote from a nurse saying I don't necessarily see back pain as a priority compared to other things that come in just to illustrate that it was a feeling that we get desensitized to this the ED is saturated with patients who are in pain and it becomes normal that we've got patients in pain so seeing them waiting while in pain becomes normal and that's a barrier to providing adequate pain relief the second theme was that staff don't believe there's a need to improve pain management So there was some recognition that we're not brilliant at it, but there didn't seem to be a strong belief that we needed to change among the the participants who were interviewed. And these were all clinicians involved in the care of patients in the emergency department. So there were were a couple of things. One was that nurses felt perhaps they were powerless because they can't prescribe. They had to rely on the doctors to prescribe the pain relief. And there was another suggestion that maybe we need champions to champion adequate analgesia in the emergency department. And without that, mm-hmm. perhaps we'll always struggle. The third theme was that the ED environment is chaotic and there, there are limitations with the staff roles, which make it difficult to improve mm-hmm. pain management. So there's just a quote from a doctor here to illustrate that when you're battling to keep your head above water, it's very hard to aim for excellence. Mm-hmm. I think we can all relate to that with the current pressures. It is very chaotic and it's difficult under those those circumstances to recognise those patients who may be suffering with pain, perhaps silently. The fourth theme was that pain management is based on experience, not knowledge. That's a really interesting one. Uh, I guess you don't learn about how to provide decent pain relief from a textbook. It's passed down and it's based on experience. So you learn from those who have been there and done that. Uh, And that's a theme that was brought out from the literature. So uh, there's there's a desire here for specific knowledge around various aspects of pain management. So things like the physiology of pain and knowledge, but the consequences that might actually help them. So more knowledge rather than just the experience could help to improve the care. There were a couple of interesting quotes on that one. This is the, the next theme that I'll go to, which is staff lack trust in the patient's ability to judge pain or manage it appropriately. So quote here. I'm going to give you two actually. A patient with a broken wrist gives a pain score of 10. All right, you shouldn't generalize, but a pain score of 10 gets a triage code orange, which is very urgent. Naturally, that never happens. Mm -hmm. These patients mostly get the yellow code. So there's a sense there that the patient's telling you 10 out of 10, but the staff are downgrading it saying, well, if I if I give you a 10 out of 10, then I'm going to have to give you an orange priority, but I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. The other quote I wanted to bring out was the more you're there, the more they are like what we call dramatic. But when you walk away and no one's around, they're fine. We can probably all relate to that. And it just sort of highlights the fact that perhaps as busy clinicians, we can get a little bit cynical and a little bit judgmental that perhaps we expect a patient in pain to be constantly demonstrating that to us by writhing in agony or showing emotion on their face or something, perhaps not recognising that sometimes patients can be in a lot of pain but not necessarily showing it to us so i found this really interesting The just to finally mention they tried to integrate these findings with those of the quantitative surveys and the surveys had mainly sort of highlighted environmental factors rather than going into those descriptions as being important like the busyness of the emergency department etc but there is one area of disagreement the barrier of inability to medicate unless a diagnosis was made was the top-ranking barrier within the quantitative studies that they found, but was only mentioned briefly in qualitative studies. That's one that I always read about. You know, we, We need a diagnosis before we take the pain seriously. Suddenly, for example, if we know the patient's got acute pancreatitis, we take that pain a lot more seriously. But until we know that, we don't take it as seriously. And that was revealed in the quantitative studies, but didn't come out quite as much in the qualitative studies. Anyhow, some really interesting pearls of wisdom to guide our approach to pain management in the emergency department. Sarah?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it really highlights and I recognise some of those statements, some of those sensitives and sadly some of those judgmental thoughts. Um, So it's not a surprise to me. It's sad to hear it. But I think it highlights, you know, Emergency medicine can be a really challenging environment for lots of things and pain management. And this also reflects the Royal College of Emergency Medicine's pain audits that they do as for different conditions and things. So I'm not surprised. It's about then taking what is the next step, really.
0: Absolutely. And moving on from that, thinking about patient-centred things, you've taken a look at a scoping review of patient and public involvement in emergency care research.
1: So getting your patients involved and the public involved within your research more so than just studying them has been increasingly a drive for lots of work and research, you know, probably in the last decade or so. More so than, you know, as I was saying, getting them involved and being the research participant, but actually getting them to shape and educate about how the study might be done, what the issues might be, and and things like that. So, this is a scoping review by Rachel Muir and team. And um, it's a scoping review that very much follows um, ARCSI and O'Malley and reports it in a standardized way and uses the Prisma sort of. Um, search guidance. And what they essentially were looking to understand is to establish the extent of PPI, so patient and public involvement in emergency care research, identify PPI strategies and processes and assess the quality of reporting on PPI in emergency care research. So things That were included and I think it's important that we just briefly run through these so studies which report on patient involvement in ED research including but not limited to for example patient and consumer involvement in identifying topics for research refining research questions study design shaping data collection etc undertaken you know and it's about the emergency department they did it um, from January 2010 all the way through to August of 2010 in the English language, peer-reviewed with no restrictions. An exclusion criteria will will be what you'd think, which would be studies where patient involvement is limited to just being a research subject, uh, studies which focus on pre-hospital settings and editorials, opinion pieces, abstracts, conference proceedings, such as that. So they did a very broad search, um, which ended up with sort of 5,402 articles were screened. And they whittled it down to 28 studies that they did a full text review on. Geographically, the majority of these studies were conducted in countries with, you know, very high incomes, such as uh, the USA, Canada and the UK and Australia, and with one study being conducted in Ghana. mix of different types of studies, uh, some qualitative, some mixed methods, some um, experience-based co-design, and lots of detail within the paper about some of those those research papers. With the question around, you know, to what extent has PPI been used in emergency care research? Patients and the public were used in a variety of different ways, from engagement and, you know, classification. Um, some were led and supported by Some were collaborative studies. The re- lots of studies just did a sort of a mixture of, you know, study design, focus groups, you know, trying to really understand that. Interestingly, the most common topics that were looked at were paediatric and mental health emergency care, with 11 studies involved in paediatric and youth-focused topics. Five studies were involving mental health care suicidal ideation, and self-harm. Eight studies improved on ED processes and pathways, including diagnostics, errors, things such as that. And seven studies looked at a variety of things from stroke, uh, chronic disease, palliative and end-of-life care, asthma, renal, and head injury. And then thinking about what strategies and approaches have been used um, to involve patients and the public in emergency care, PPI was frequently reported in the design of the study, interventions, or materials. Of the 28 studies that they looked at, 21 studies reported PPI contributions to the development of the research design, interventions, outcomes, etc. Nine studies reported PPI contributed, contribu- contributions on the development of emergency care pathways, services and processes, and five studies reported contributions um, around priority setting within emergency care research. The bottom line is, and the paper really highlights this well, is only 28 studies involved patients, involved within the, you know, the key aspects that are involved within study design, out of, you know, probably several thousand studies that were published. And I think it's really important that this paper goes on, that we get patients involved and get the public involved to really get our studies right and asking the right questions for emergency medicine research.
0: Yeah, I know firsthand exactly how valuable good patient and public involvement can be. I think we're getting better at this, but this paper just shows how far we've got to go that we're not involving patients and public very often but they can play such an instrumental role in every part of the study from even prioritizing and designing your research questions right through to how you disseminate your findings so great to have that focus
1: so and i think we're going on to you next rick with your next paper this is looking at multi-users within the emergency department
0: Yeah, so moving on to frequent ED attenders. Um, So this paper uh, from the United States took a look at a database of 3.3 million patients who'd attended hospitals in three different states. And they had a look at whether patients who attend the emergency department frequently continue to do so year on year. So there's some evidence that actually frequent attendees at the emergency department sort of desist after a while. They don't carry on, don't tend to carry on doing it for a long time, but some do. So first of all, they wanted to describe the problem. Is it true that frequent attenders sort of drop off after a while? Uh, How many of them persist with their frequent attendances? And what factors might predict whether they continue to attend frequently? So they identified patients who were attending frequently, which they defined as more than four attendances in a year, and then they followed them over the subsequent years to see if they carried on. And it was true that they dropped off, so very few people continue to attend frequently. Over the two to three consecutive years, only 14.9% of the frequent attendees continued to attend regularly. And when you go a bit further, over four to six consecutive years, only 3.6% of those frequent attendees continue to attend that frequently. So uh, it's very true. When the patients who uh, see us very often Tended to give up doing that after a while. They had a look at what factors might predict whether patients continue to attend frequently. And the factors that predicted it were the number of visits in the first year. So if you have more visits in that first year, then you are more likely to go on attending frequently in the future. If you've not got health insurance, this is a US study. So if you've not got health insurance, that predicts ongoing frequent attendance. And If you have more chronic conditions and comorbidities, also if you tend to attend the ED for less medically urgent conditions, then you're more likely to go on attending. They broke it down by presenting complaint, and they they sort of they did this, for example, by clinical diagnosis. And most of the clinical diagnoses they looked at predicted ongoing persistence of frequent attendances compared to those who were given no diagnosis, except for. Uh, attendance related to suicide they were less likely to attend and that I guess is slightly worrying because those patients perhaps weren't attending because something had happened to them uh, so this really gives us an idea about the patterns of frequent attendance and it might help to guide future inter- interventions to, into frequent attendance by helping us to understand who's most likely to go on continuing to attend frequently
1: yeah, really interesting work there. We've, we've talked a lot about um, papers in recent months around frequent tenders. And again, this is just adding to the body of literature, which is really important because I think it can be high cost, high use, and really trying to unpick it is hugely important.
0: Absolutely. And let's move on now to ultrasound. You've taken a look at a paper looking at ultrasound for ankle injuries.
1: Yeah, so this is another systematic review. The journal this month is full of really good systematic reviews and scoping reviews. And this is by uh, Deuter.com et al. and looking at the accuracy of ultrasound in diagnosing ankle injuries in emergency care. So they did a standard uh, systematic review, as you'd expect, um, and they found 13 studies which evaluated 1,455. So 1,455 patients with bony injuries were included. Ten studies reported a sensitivity for a fracture was over 90%, but varied among studies between 76% and 100%, with confidence interval at 95%, uh, 63 to 86%. And in nine studies, the reported specificity was at least 91%, but again varied between 85 and 100%. Six studies included 337 patients um, where they used ultrasound to diagnose the ligamentous injuries and found a sensitivity and specificity of around 94% and 100%. And what was really interesting about this was that almost all the sonographers so people that were doing the ultrasound were emergency medicine doctors who had limited experience in doing this but for bony injuries or ligamentous injuries the overall evidence quality was low so the bottom line is from this study and the authors say this is that ultrasound potentially has great application for ankle injuries both bony and ligamentous but we just need more evidence about it.
0: Yeah, it's a shame there was such a high degree of heterogeneity, which meant you couldn't get a pooled estimate of the sensitivity and specificity. But that's the nature of a systematic review. And the variation in sensitivity is quite telling because a lot of these studies had really high sensitivity, but some had way too low sensitivity, 76% for it to be used clinically. I guess the next job is to have a look at, well, Why did those studies have such a low sensitivity? Is there something about them? Do we need to standardise training? Is it something about the expertise of the user, for example, that could allow us to reliably get sensitivity at that higher end? Um, So I guess I wouldn't use it right now, but there's a scope for having a closer look at this and seeing if maybe with more structured training and a sort of robust expertise, perhaps we could achieve that high sensitivity that could obviate the need for x-ray.
1: And I guess my final thought really is what is it we're trying to do by ultrasounding the ankle? Is it just looking for a fracture? How bad is it? And what is the utility in diagnosing ligamentous injuries? I don't think we know and I'm not sure the evidence from this paper suggests that we know either. Lastly, we're going to hand over to you for the last paper which is about COVID, Rick.
0: Yeah, so we've got a nice analysis here from a group of authors led by Stephanie Beresford in Liverpool, where they looked at data from the pandemic, so phase one and phase two of the pandemic, to see sort of patterns of escalation decisions, what predicted escalation decisions and how did the prognosis of the patients uh, change based on the decisions that were made about escalation. So in Liverpool, they had a very interesting protocol whereby a senior critical care physician would review all of the patients admitted with COVID who required oxygen, and they'd make an immediate decision about escalation. So they included 203 patients, 139 of them who were treated in the first wave of the pandemic and 64 in the second wave. And they found out that if you are deemed suitable for escalation, you were likely to be significantly younger. You had a lower clinical frailty score, lower 4C score, which is a mortality prediction score, compared to patients who were deemed uh, not to benefit from escalation. And as you might expect, the mortality for patients who weren't deemed suitable for escalation was significantly higher than the patients who weren't deemed suitable for escalation. There were a couple of interesting things within this. The use of DNA CPR decisions was greater in cohort one, in wave one. That sort of rings true. I guess we had less collective immunity so that the disease was was much more seemed to be much more severe in wave one and maybe that's reflected in you know those stats from cohort one perhaps it's because care homes were more affected I'm not sure meanwhile more patients were admitted to ICU in the second wave more patients died in wave one and more patients were deemed unsuitable for escalation in wave one than in wave two so Interesting description of experiences from the pandemic and the consequences of decisions around escalation.
1: And I think what's interesting about that paper, that probably reflects my experience where I was working at the time. And I would imagine this probably is similar to your experience of where you were likely working at the time. I think there's a lot to learn from this um, and hopefully we don't need to try it out in another pandemic.
0: Certainly hope not. So that's been uh, um, you know another really interesting month of papers in the EMJ there is even more so make sure you check do check out the journal as well because you'll see more more great stuff online but that's enough for us from august so thank you very much
1: and bye for me and see you soon take care